ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, I am live from Exchange, which is the ETF event of the year. It's being held down in Miami, Florida. It's currently about 80 degrees outside. It's about 100 degrees in the room where we're <laughs> recording. Uh, unfortunately, I am inside, but hopefully I'll be heading down to the bar by the beach for cocktails as soon as this is done recording. Uh, it is late in the afternoon right now, just to be clear on that. But uh, look, it's been an amazing past several days. I always love seeing everyone in person. It just feels like there's so much positive energy and momentum and positive vibes in the ETF space right now. Uh, it's just so much fun to be a part of. And so for this week's podcast, I'm going to be doing a recap of some of the key takeaways and highlights from this event. However, I won't be doing this alone. Joining me are three of the very best in the ETF business. Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify, Dave Nodig, Financial Futurist at Vetify, and Eric Balchuna, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Laura, Dave, Eric, so great to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. It's a nice, comfortable chair to sit in after standing for 48 hours, so you're welcome. <laughs> well, I agree. <laughs> I'm a little bit disappointed we couldn't get a drink cart in this room. I feel like at this time of day, we really should have had cocktails a, on the table. We could have had a killer I was audience. just <laughs> in the Invesco Roy Williams uh, splash room or whatever, and they had beer. I almost, I almost grabbed one, but I thought that's just... <laughs> I'm a professional here. Maybe we should oh. put pause on the recording. <laughs> Go, come back. Yeah, no, there's there's a bunch of free beer, like about, uh, I don't know, 20 yards away. All right, so just to set the stage for people who aren't actually here watching us record this live, I'm currently decked out in my Kansas City Chief shirt. Eric has a Philadelphia Eagles jersey on. Of course, the Super Bowl is on Sunday. Uh, so, Eric, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you want to make our bet now, or should we leave a little uh, cliffhanger for the end of the show? Let's just get it out of the way. It's the elephant in the room. 
where I see you have that red Chiefs, which I I just see red. Uh, <laughs> and look, I I don't have anything against the Chiefs. They're not one of those teams I like don't like, like the Cowboys. But for the next two weeks, or for the I, for the two weeks uh, that we waited for the Super Bowl, I definitely do not like the Chiefs, and I want to see Patrick <laughs> Mahomes fail, and I want to get a a Super Bowl, and it's very exciting, and I'm pumped. All right, so let's do this uh, do this in two parts. First, just your prediction on the game. Like, I want a score prediction. And then two, we need to decide what our bet is. Score prediction, uh, 30 to 14. Whoa, okay. It's a little bit of a blowout. Here's why. Wow. The big variable that you guys don't – I think people are underrating is you don't have Tyreek Hill anymore. You could throw – Patrick Mullins just threw a football up in the air. That guy's going to get it, and he's going to run 20 yards after he catches it. They don't have that anymore. It's really Patrick Mahomes on, you know, mostly a healthy ankle. And then Andy Reid's going to screw up the clock management. I know personally from like 15 years of that. And the only question is Jalen Hurts is young. Is he, is he mature enough? You know, he, sometimes you got to lose one to, and you, you build. Is he going to win one that quickly after coming out of school? That would be amazing. But Jalen Hurts has the mentality of like a, a older person. He's very mature for his so age. 30 14. Obviously, you, you, you're picking the team. Oh, yeah. Inherently. <laughs> What's the actual line? Does the actual anyone? line is uh, Philadelphia favored by a point and a half. But, oh, but for okay. our You're betting purposes, we're not we're not messing with no, no, spreads no, no, here. It. We're going straight up. Okay, so let me give you my prediction. I'm predicting Chiefs 27-24. I think it's going to be a little bit more of a defensive battle than what people are expecting. But you may recall, and this was out on Twitter, I put out there, I think it was early December, that we'd have a Philly Chiefs Super Bowl. And in that same tweet, I said, what's going to happen is uh, Andy Reid will mess up the clock down, down the stretch. And Mahomes is going to bail him out. And so I'm sticking with that. Uh, I think Mahomes is going to come through down the stretch, bad ankle or not, and Chiefs are going to win. All right, so what are we wagering? I, I think I've got the bet for you. The winner will be taking Laura Krieger and I to dinner at the loser's expense. I love I, this I bet. This, this is my favorite football bet ever. I love this I'm bet. totally down down for that. Uh, the where. <laughs> This would have to be in Miami next year, though, because you're all you work remotely. New York, we could do New York. We yeah. can make that happen. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We actually planned one ahead of time. Oh, okay. And it's a pretty big one. I mean, it's not this price tag isn't small. You want to say it or no, should I? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. The loser has to send the the winner a jersey of their choice from the NFL dot com website, which is you know about a buck fifty. So <sighs> I know he wants Patrick Mahomes, which I'm surprised you don't have, and I want Jalen Hurts. Because the only Eagles jersey I own is uh, Mike Kafka, which if you might not un- know who that is, but I'll tell you, I was I got to tell the story. It's so weird. I was watching Eagles like I don't know seven eight years ago, and they had a guy that had Kafka on the back of his uniform. And I'm a big fans of the postmodern writer Franz Kafka. He's a dark. He wrote the Metamorphosis. Really was weird. Was there like a whole insect theme? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. But I was like football. And Franz Kafka are the two most opposite things you can ever think of. And here they just collided. And the other thing is when I played football, I was always on the third string. I was not that good. I was good in the backyards. But once I got onto like the high school teams, I just wasn't big or strong enough. So I related to the third stringer. But when I wear this, people kind of like make fun of me and they don't understand. And I think uh, it's a joke just for me. And so I really could use a good popular player's jersey. All right. So we absolutely have a deal. I'm going to give you one other bonus here too. So if the Eagles win... I will play Fly Eagles Fly on my podcast next Tuesday. Now, I know since you're with Bloomberg, you have tighter constraints than I do. So I'm not going to ask you to, to play the uh, the tomahawk chop uh, on your podcast. If you can, you're more than welcome to. But I, I'm going to add that extra bonus in. I'll at least say I'll acknowledge I lost and that the Chiefs are great. 
I don't know if I can play the song, but I'll definitely <laughs> right. do something on the pod. Okay, so let's move on to uh, ETFs in, in the conference here. And let me just start with what I felt like was the overall vibe of this event. And just the backdrop here is that the U.S. ETF industry turned 30 years old, right? The Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, that launched in 1993. There was a fantastic uh, session that celebrated that. There was also a wonderful tribute to Kathleen Moriarty, uh, by the way. I, I thought it was great. She was instrumental in the launch of this product, uh, Spider Woman. But I mentioned that because, to me, the ETF industry now feels 30 years old, but not in, the ba- not in a bad way. It just feels... Uh, mature, right? You walk around the exhibit hall, uh, you have all of these larger asset managers who really push back on entering the space for a long time. Now they're front and center. Um, they're all stripes of advisors here, right? It's not maybe as entrepreneurial in terms of the advisors that are using these products. It just feels like ETFs are all grown up now. And I can't remember, Eric, if you use this analogy or maybe it was Joel Weber, but it's like ETFs have moved out of their parents' basement. Yeah. So so let me start with that. Did any of you feel that vibe at all? Yeah. Absolutely. I actually spoke to a few institutional invi- uh, in- investors who were here um, just talking and, and trying to learn about how better to use ETFs in their own um, portfolio management, which, you know, may have been sort of unthinkable five, ten years ago. So, uh, yeah, to that point, I just feel like, um, you know, it used to be when we first joined this industry uh, or first started covering this industry, it was a bit of a wild west, a bunch of cowboys all with their you know, belt buckles and, you know, six shooters going, uh, you know, at all uh, hours of the night in the lobby. But it really feels like we've all gotten a little older, wiser. And um, yeah, I, I think for me, the the takeaway is breadth. Right, which I think is saying something similar to what you're saying. You know, if you went to an ETF event six or seven years ago, there would be a thing, right? Uh, ESG, crypto, smart beta, whatever. There would there'd be a thing, and all the issuers would be behind it. We'd all be writing about it, trying to figure out what the heck the issuers were doing with all of that. Advisors would have lots of questions about it because there was good marketing, so their clients were asking questions about it. But it tended to be a fairly monoculture kind of projection from the industry into these kinds of events and into the coverage, too. I mean, articles people would read. Here, it feels like we've graduated to kind of choose your own adventure, where there are folks here, both from the issuer side and from the investor side, who are rolling up fairly traditional, unless we say boring portfolios using ETFs as incredible, high efficiency, low cost building blocks. And there are folks here who are just trying to shoot the lights out on everything. And there's something here for all of them. So I, th- I really enjoyed the fact that we had that breadth here so we could talk about everything from using liquid alts, alts to, okay, I guess I need to rethink my short-term bond exposure, which are pretty different conversations. Yeah, I would. one thing I noticed also is you can tell that a bear market happened. Uh, there's the booths and there's, there's, lack, there's no flamboyancy really this year. I, I remember years, like especially the last couple, where at the end of a bull market cycle, some of the booths like had like, skiing simulation you could shoot baskets i mean there was people handing out all kinds of like interesting swag uh clearly there's been a contraction and a return to the basics and it's interesting the way the portfolios have done that the booths and the energy has reflected that i think and it just feels a little more um sober maybe if that's a good run up i think yeah you're turning 30 seems like an appropriate but i i I i do think the bear market also added to that feeling 
Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah. You know where that was most noticeable to me was crypto because I felt like exchange last year, it was almost a hybrid crypto ETF event. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you guys are laughing because you know no, it's, no, it's true. true. It's true. We also true, had true. that crypto event right, right before exchange. Yeah. So there were a lot of people here who wanted to talk about it. Yeah. They consumed No, that I mean, last year I wore that and still no spot Bitcoin <laughs> ETF shirt. I mean, that's how into it, it I was. I got a Haven't shirt made. I know. And now I, I it's like a distant memory. <laughs> Do you think, though, that's be? I mean, obviously, the market environment last year in crypto and the shenanigans we saw with FTX and all of that. Do you think that was a driver or do you just feel like it's a tired topic? Uh, like, why, why the change? I do think, uh, you know, crypto, a pullback on crypto was part of it, just a broader pullback on thematics in general. I mean, there was some thematics coverage. It was actually a thematics panel. But generally speaking, it seemed much more to your point about it being a bear market. Like there was less of that flamboyance and I feel like th thematics to an extent fall within the flamboyant uh, ETF buckets. So. We, yeah. we, we made a pretty conscious decision to put what I would say is a bunch more advisor focused That's content true. on stage too. So I get your point about the booth. That's 100% true. There was no giant virtual reality maze or anything <laughs> like that. And you know, but but it's not like there were fewer of them. I mean, I think mm -hmm. we had over 100 sponsors here, which is yeah. more than we had last year. And, and the booths are still huge. They're just a little bit more professional and the swag is still cool, but now it's not, you know, strange blow up pool toys. It's like, no, this is a really good notebook, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, yeah. No, I think price uh, determines sentiment. Like, so the price goes down, all of a sudden it just doesn't become as interesting. Crypto was becoming something that has created a lot of FOMO. So that's why I was, because everybody was like, should I buy it or not? It was a huge issue. And obviously it fell out. And then also the idea that you could not get your money out. That's a huge black eye for that industry. Um, but yeah, we noticed that Bitwise from the great Matt Hogan was in the back of the back. It was practically like down the street. I mean, you couldn't, <laughs> that booth was at the very end of the booths. And I was just, it was seemed symbolic of what happened to crypto over the last year. But we've seen this over the years. We saw this with Smart Beta f faded in and out. I mean, there's always a flavor of the month. Totally. And, and, and also, I mean, they had prime real estate because they were right next to the puppy lounge. And that was That's pretty true. <laughs> that was pretty prime real estate. No, well they are well they're upstairs. They're next to the uh where you go outside to see the uh you can see the ocean. Oh yeah. So the, it is nice. Oh, yeah, they're yeah, right. we're actually over there right. too, but I'm telling you if you were to walk into the front doors of the hotel, they're probably the furthest booth by foot. Dave, you bring up a good point in terms of the content at this event where it was much more advisor focused, practice management, and I, I would say ETFs were still the star of the show. But there was much more emphasis placed on that advisor experience and, and how they're managing their businesses. Um, have it, it, When I talk about ETFs maturing, I mean, is that part of the process now where advisors view ETFs are another tool in the toolbox? We're still going to see tremendous growth in the industry, those sorts of things. Nothing negative about ETFs, but that the, the focus is more on advisors and the different tools they have and not so much on ETFs. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think what we're trying to do is recognize that ETFs are in fact a tool that is used by a group of people trying to accomplish a job and they have needs other than just understanding an individual product. And we got this message pretty loud and clear. I mean, we talked to, like Laura and her team, talked to advisors more than, I, I have to imagine, more than any other team of people in the world in terms of the number of hours spent just talking to advisors and doing Q&As. 
and like the message is pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, and and we tailored the content this year uh, around what they were asking for. They were asking for more in-depth focus uh, in in terms of a uh, you know financial planning topics. They were asking for um, more actionable strategies that they could use in their practices. Just go home uh, tomorrow and immediately put it into uh, into practice. And so um, I have gotten. And I'm sure you you have heard this too. Uh, just so many, po- so many positive vibes from uh, advisors watching Brian Portnoy's uh, storytelling he workshop, uh, Sam Russell's uh, workshop. Yeah, her. I mean, I have four different people come up and ask for the slides for that. Show. Van- Vance Bars Vance did. Bars. Vance Bars did an hour on things like how to use intentionally defective trusts. That's not usually a big winner at a conference. That place was packed. It was riveting. <laughs> he was so great. So, I mean, that that was absolutely intentional. And yeah, I guess you could say it came at the quote unquote expense of we could have had 15 more sessions on ETFs. But the reality is we've got, what, 3,000 ETFs right now plus we got most of the bases covered. We don't really need to under- explain what indexing is from the ground up again, unless you're showing up at the university session, in which case you get CE credits for it. Congratulations. You know? Yeah, and I'll, I'll kind of meld both of what we're talking about on the advisor side and ETF. So you may have seen State Street Global Advisors released a survey yesterday, and uh, they found 81% of U.S. investors working with a financial advisor indicate their financial advisor has helped them remain confident in this period of rising inflation and market volatility. And then I'll throw one other stat out here. They said in 2022, 65% of advisors recommend using ETFs in their portfolio, and 41% of advisors are looking to increase their usage of ETFs in the next 12 months. So that really hits on what we're saying here, right? And that um, advisors are an important cog in the machine here. They're looking at ETFs, but there are other considerations here. I want to ask you, Eric, you had... uh, uh, Brian Lake from JP Morgan on ETF IQ. So you were broadcasting live here. And uh, he made a prediction on ETF growth, which caught my attention. So I think he predicted ETF assets to double to what was it, 15 trillion? I, I just love your take on that. You were there while he was. Uh, sorry, by 2028. Yeah. Next five years. Yeah. I mean, he his take is that if you look back, ETFs uh, double the assets every five years. So by that math, it would double. Uh, and, he, you know, I. I Again, I, I agree with him. He also said active would make up 20 to 25% of that number, um, and it would take a much bigger share. And I agree. Here's why. I think a big chunk of that mu- number is going to come from mutual fund conversions yeah, that's or mutual funds lowering their fee and getting competitive. Uh, Cap Group did it. I think Morgan Stanley's going to do it. Once you get under 40, I think advisors will give you a look if you're active. I think if you're over 40 and you're doing anything close to the benchmark, uh, it just seems expensive. And I think... Um, now that they're getting below 40 and they got big distribution, I think we're going to see a huge, almost a transfer of all those active mutual fund assets coming into the ETF structure. Uh, and then at the same time, I don't think the Vanguard iShares uh, cheap beta thing is going anywhere. So I think you have two gigantic sources of flows. And then maybe a third line is for all of the unique structured product type stuff, solutions, uh, thematics, the fun stuff, the hot sauce. Um, yeah, I think those are the three lanes that we'll see those flows. 20% is a lot. Like that implies that they take over a lot of flows. I would totally go with, you know, but five years from now, 25% of flows year after year coming inactive. That I believe for them to get from the, what is it, eight, 9% now that they're at? No, they're, they're, they're only at four. Four, okay. So, but but flows uh, there at about twelve last year. No, they were 15. they were higher. They were no. uh, 14, 15 percent of all flows this year. They're already above twenty. Every single DFA product is taking in money this year already. Like, 
and I know this is not totally natural. Something's going on at these firms where they're basically all the m money coming in or maybe somebody who was going to leave is going to the ETF. So there's something unnatural about some of these big active shops flows. And so, you know, I get it. I think the unnaturalness is that they're simply having a platform shift over. It's yeah, not like their distribution, right. pointing it at the ETF market. Yeah. Own Bitcoin, but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin income strategy. Simplify Asset Management Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. Let me ask you this, though. So it, one thing that stood out to me at this conference was that there was an emphasis away from plain vanilla, clearly, right? There was much more focus on active ETF, smart beta, just what we're talking about. And it feels like ETF issuers are trying to take advantage of the market environment that we've seen right over the past couple of years. So the question that I'll have for you is, I mean, as you look at growth moving forward, we know that flows are going to continue into plain vanilla products. But do you see higher growth coming from active or smart beta? You know, if you remember at one point in time, people were... I feel like proclaiming smart beta was dead. It was a fad, right? But now if people are actually looking for something different than uh, plain vanilla, given the market environment, are we going back to this um, you, you know, rules-based, take out the human emotion, active? I, I think we are. And just to circle back on something that um, Eric and Dave were talking about, you know, we are seeing the dimensionals and the big, uh, you know, mutual fund shops that are converting over and getting a lot of assets. But there are so many more active managers coming into the market. It's very much a spaghetti against the wall scenario right now. And it's going to take some time to kind of settle out and see what pasta sticks, right? Um, so to your question about, uh, you know, are, are we moving into a renaissance of actively managed funds? Uh, or are we moving to back to like rules based? I think it's going to be a little bit of both. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is a real tendency to use passive ETFs in active ways. Right. So people are getting a little bit more sophisticated with their usage of ETFs are getting a little bit more um, you know, tactical and, and more um, granular with how they're building out diversified ETF portfolios. They're not just plunking it all in an ag or a, uh, you know, a spy and calling it a day. Right. They want to have more of a fine tuned um, exposure to deal with the kind of markets that we're finding ourselves in. And I had some interesting conversations with advisors here. We did two panels on fixed income here. They're both great. Both of them were had sort of an active passive bent. Right? Like Jeff Sherman from Double Line, Steve Lapley from from BlackRock, um, and and you know it was still very cordial discussion. And I talked to a couple of advisors after, and they basically said the same thing you're saying, Laura, which is they're just getting more sophisticated in the questions they're asking of the products that they use. So I you know I had a bunch of folks saying, well, yeah, you know, all the treasury allocations, all the cor corporate stuff, cheap beta, all the way. But I recognize that if I'm looking at anything that's more than like 5% yield, I need somebody paying attention, whether that's a high yield bond manager or senior loan product. Now, those have been very successful passive categories for ETFs, HYG, BKLN, SRLN. And, and you know, if you look at what's happened in flows there, it's clearly moved more towards the more exotic part of it, like BKLN, SRLN picking up the money, HYG, JNK losing it sort of on balance over the last year or two. But when you start talking about those narrower things, that's where I start hearing, oh, yeah, I think I'm looking at a PIMCO product there. Oh, yeah, I want to look at that leveraged loan product because I talked to that guy and he seems to know what he's talking about. That's where active management, I think, starts really getting the nose in 
Absolutely. And if you take a look at uh, some of the, 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 the concepts and the thoughts that were thrown around on the alts panel, I think that underscores what you're saying, right? Alternatives is another asset class where active management can really step it up um, and, and really take the exposures to a whole new level. You know, we're seeing a lot of interest uh, and engagement on the Vetify platform around DBMF. I think I was on your show not too long ago talking about how DBMF, uh, DBMF was a rising star last year and how it just saw an incredible increase in engagement. Uh, I, I mean, Andrew Beer was a, a bell of the ball kind of here. Well, I, to I, be I, fair, he brought a dog. He brought a dog. But <laughs> I, what I, I mean, I wasn't talking about the dog. I, I was talking about the advisors no, I, I was talking into in the crowds and at happy hours that were just telling us telling me how much they just really loved that product and i think it goes back to um you know a different kind a little bit more a little bit not just vanilla exposure to that asset class okay so well, everybody here bullish on active yeah forward. one thing on smart beta though i know that was the big debate like eight years ago and then it was replaced but uh, it took in sixty billion last year. I, like, I would say USMV, yeah, SPLV, yeah. like a lot RSP, of them in stuff. So, RSP. Uh, unlike yeah. Todd Rosenbluth, I consider to, uh, Smart Beta active. It's just rules based. So if you take Smart Beta plus Active Active, and and you take uh, ESG and themes and you add them all together and you call that active. Oh well, yeah. Now mm. you're then you're at thirty percent if you did include that. So I know um, Brian's number was just more discretionary active, but I do think um, Active has a much bigger. A home and I think like something like cows cows is an interesting mm -hmm. product it just looks at free cash flow yield and that was a popular thing because huge, everybody yeah huge advisor favorite last year but yeah. I think the way they created that was they took something that were, was part of a portfolio managers process and they stripped out one metric and they stripped out how they look at that metric and just turn it into an ETF so mm -hmm. if I'm an active manager now I'm actually not only looking to like convert my ETF or get it over but like basically taking little chunks of my process and just throwing them out there in an ETF because every now and then a certain metric gets hot and you might as well and it's not competing with your other products. So I think the cows tapped into something interesting there by a sort of like unbundling the metrics that Active uses. We're always talking about how ETFs are tools in a toolbox, but now it really feels like you know, with with those sorts of segmented ETFs that are really just highly, highly targeted on a certain yield, it really does become a tool in a toolbox, a hammer or a screwdriver or Phillips screwdriver that you could use. for Exactly. I also equate them to like a big stereo with a bunch of knobs. Mm. I need a little more cash flow. I need a little more China. I need a little more of this. Yeah. And ETFs provide and you can get the it's like uh, the equilibrium knobs. If you're any over 40, you know what that means. But uh, <laughs> you can perfectly, perfectly get fine tuned exposure. Um, and I think I would call that customization. I know direct indexing tries to use that term, but that's pretty customized. And I think that's what ETFs are, are so useful at doing. I just want to, not to be a wet blanket, <clears throat> I do want to point out that, yes, I'm bullish on active as a participant in the ETF industry. I do not believe that all of a sudden 60% of active equity managers are going to start outperforming indexes. I actually think that that is a pendulum swing, that we just went through a really unbelievably radical shift in the capital market structure of the global economy, which is largely unwinding, and the active managers managed to get up over 50% not losing for the first time in my lifetime in this business. So like... I think we should slow our roll a little bit on like, ah, active managers are back and every, all these stock pickers are going to make all this money and every every bond portfolio should be actively managed because they're going to outperform. I do not believe that. I do think that the pendulum does swing back and I still think it's going to be extremely difficult to pick an actively managed stock or bond fund 
that outperforms over more than a one-year window. But wait a minute, aren't you a proponent and you're bullish on direct indexing moving forward, which I would argue is stock picking. That's active management. I'm not suggesting that that doesn't have a component of active management. I'm saying there's a difference between that and the PIMCO total return fund, right? Which is an actively managed multi-asset income strategy, right? That is a very different beast than the S&P 499 that I get through parametric because I don't want to own Google. Okay. Very different, very Fair. different yeah. th use of the word active here. Okay. So uh, we broached one of my favorite topics earlier in crypto. I'm going to bring up another one of my favorite topics, which is ESG. Why are, and you, why are you pointing at me? <laughs> and here, here's what I would say. Uh, from my perspective, there really wasn't a strong emphasis on ESG uh, this year. And we're certainly not going to get into a full debate, Laura, but I'll bait you a little bit. So during Dave's future finance session, which was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Mike Green over at Simplify, he said, quote, ESG is a BlackRock marketing line. I almost fell out of my chair. Then Jan Van Eck published a piece yesterday titled ESG died in 2022. And then today, Double Line's Jeff Sherman said, do you want to be green or do you want to make money? And he was uh, talking about ESG and, and bonds. So where is everyone's head on ESG? Is this sort of another tired topic right now, like a spot Bitcoin ETF? Has something changed here? Because the sentiment definitely struck me as uh, it, it, it was just, it was lacking. It, you know, I noticed that too. And I think it comes back to a trend that we're seeing that the concept of ESG as an umbrella term, an acronym that's going to be a catch-all to describe every single uh, you know, strategy that falls within some uh, save the planet uh, sort of umbrella, it's not meaningful. And in the same way that smart beta was not a meaningful term, right? So, uh, but what I am seeing though is, and we're seeing this on our platform, I'm seeing this in the conversations we had here and on the conversations we had on stage, is that people are taking the best ideas out of the ESG umbrella and starting to, to implement them in a thoughtful, tactical, uh, or strategic way. For example, um, instead of just having a single ETF that covers your energy portfolio, like an XLE, now people are doing things like an XLE and also, you know, an energy infrastructure fund. They're doing uh, maybe a renewable energy exposure. They're doing maybe a, a you know, a, a renewable grid exposure. They're building out a diversified portfolio that is uh, you know, in total, at play on the energy transition. So as oil falls, solar rises, and, you know, the energy infrastructure exposure is going to have, um, you know, gives you exposure, whether it's oil in the ground or carbon in the ground or um, hydrogen in the ground. So it's like they're thinking, advisors are thinking about how to protect clients and keep clients exposed no matter what happens in the future. And I'm seeing that, uh, and, and I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts as well. If you're hearing that, um, you know, more nuanced take on on ESG, what we would typically think of as ESG exposure. I, I think ESG is a terrible phrase, 
right? And it covers up way too many important parts of investment management process. I mean, like the one the example I always use with people is like, okay, great. You have an actively managed fund manager. He holds Volkswagen in the portfolio. Should he or should he not have sold Volkswagen when it became apparent they were going to be lying on their car reports to the U.S. government? Before it was proven, like you can't prove it, but it was clearly going that way. And everybody's like, oh, no, yeah, of course my active manager would have gotten out of the way. The only way that active manager would have gotten out of the way if they subscribed to a solid governance database mm-hmm. that was way ahead in putting that stuff out of there. Otherwise, you took it on the teeth and you sold VW way down. Wirecard, same thing, right? There's a number of these examples where significant drawdowns were prevented by solid governance data sets. That has nothing to do with whether or not you like solar, right? right, right. <laughs> they and should not even be part of the same conversation. Yeah. So the idea we labeled all this up with ESG and thought we could index it is ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so I agree. ESG should be part of a active manager's due diligence process. Um, I, I think I'm bullish on that. It's good metrics. You want more data. Who doesn't? Uh, the issue is, as you said, trying to package it up and then trying to say, hey, sell VTI or VOO and put this ESG fund in your core. You may or may not outperform. What I don't like is it's being sold as like you're going to save the world and outperform. The marketing and the media has really failed at their job here. They'll do, like the FT recently reported about uh, ESG ETFs in Europe taking all this money. They don't. They didn't even report about the regulations that sort of make that a lot easier. In the U.S., ESG only took in 1.5% of all the flows last year. That was pretty much a failure. Uh, I think it's going to top off at 2-3% market share simply because I'm just, again, DI, I'm bearish anything trying to dislodge a three basis point beta from the core. Now, to Laura's point, Lara's point, uh, the idea of peppering, some things on top of cheap beta, like for example, I just want to invest in companies that are leading the green revolution because, or electric vehicles, and you put that in as almost like in your hot sauce bucket as a thematic ESG, I'm more bullish that simply because it makes more practical sense in a portfolio and it's not trying to dislodge uh, the Vanguard from your core. I say Vanguard universally as just cheap beta. I'm not trying to promote that brand, but you know what I mean, like uh, IVV or VOO, people love those. And those ETFs, you never have to worry whether you'll underperform or outperform because <clears throat> you are, it's just the market. ESG, you're always going to have that problem. In 10 years, it's it's possible you underperform and that could lead to, again, hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses. And you're probably going to ask yourself, like, was it worth it? Now, you could outperform, but again, the more costs and trading you put into something, the more likelihood is you are going to underperform the market. So I just, it, if somebody says, hey, ESG, this is active management and it costs more. And you have to really be into this because you might have to stomach some underperformance. Are you okay with that? I'd be cool if the media and everybody pitched it as that, but they're but not. it's the same as buying Fidelity Magellan, right? I mean, you have to be willing to take a couple down years in Fidelity Magellan. Agree, but Fidelity Magellan is like, we're going to outperform. ESG's like, you're going to save the world, feel good. That's another thing. There's a little bit insidiousness in that, in that like there's people at Exxon who might be good people trying to go into the energy transition. Uh, Tesla's a company that's in some, not in some. And the other thing is, even if you exclude some of these companies, a lot of them don't really care. Like they're not going to the secondary market to get new money. A bond, a bond ESG almost makes more sense because that's where they go to get capital or opportunity zones. I think stocks, it's almost like as some climate change, A real, I talked to a really pro climate change activist. She called it rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It does not matter. Own Exxon, don't. It's just, it's all an well, exercise. I mean, there's a lot of academic evidence <clears throat> that raw divestment is a horribly inefficient way to make an impact on anything, right? Just simply not owning things in the current capital structure, unless you're like the Saudi sovereign fund and you decide you're not going to own tech, 
that would probably move the needle. But like most of the most of what we're talking about here are very small decisions that won't make a difference on capital structure, which is sort of the argument for the long term divestment. I think you have to think about what kind of investor you are. If you are a sovereign wealth fund and your time horizon is genuinely infinite, then yeah, not owning certain things can be an excellent strategy for where you think the world's going to be in a literal hundred years. Most of us aren't doing that. <laughs> so the question I have is why are prominent asset managers continuing to launch pretty broad products in this space? So we can look to Morgan Stanley, who I'm bullish right, the on them overall. Stuff. They have yep. distribution, but they roll out pretty broad ESG funds uh, for, for their first entrance into the ETF market. Why, why are they continuing to do that? Not just Morgan well, Stanley, so but other from, asset So from managers. that perspective, because Calvert's been in this business, frankly, since this business existed, and they have a huge following of RAAs who use their strategies and have used them for decades very successfully. So in that case, what we're talking about is mutual fund conversion. That's, I mean, not in this case explicitly, but effectively what that is, it's bringing asset management expertise that already has a built-in audience. That's very different than uh, Vanguard all of a sudden, say, launching a series of 15 new ESG funds that are focused on a certain tilt that are completely indexed. We aren't seeing a lot of that. We really aren't. Uh, and I'll give you a stat. I, I, I think I got the number right. If you look at ESG ETFs, I think there's like 130 or 50 or it's a lot. Depends how you count, but yeah. And I think 72% are below 40 million, which means they're at risk of closing. That's a lot. So my, I had another bet with Todd uh, on ESG closures, and I know you wrote this in your year ahead. I think we're right. I was just early. I think we'll see uh, at least 20 close so this year. So you should know, right. Eric, that in investment management, that is a long way of saying wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, let, let me ask you this. On your future of finance uh, panel, Dave, you talked a little bit about just proxy voting and, and shareholder engagement. We saw Vanguard roll out a platform. What was that? A couple of weeks ago where they'll let investors put preferences in on three funds. We've seen other asset managers take that approach. Is that the, at least here in the short term, is that really the path towards? So stewardship as a, as a topic, I think, is here to stay. Um, and I think we can give engine number one a decent amount of credit for popularizing that in the ETF part of the market because they built, you know, vote the fund is all about that. It's all about stewardship. Um, and I think that that is where the easiest conversation can happen because I think people on every edge of every issue can basically agree that if you own the shares, you should be the one deciding how they get voted. That seems pretty non-controversial. Doesn't care where you are on the environmental or political spectrum. So it's an easy win in that sense. It's also really hard to do. All right, Laura, I want to give you last word on this topic before we move on. You get last word on ESG. Oh, geez. No pressure. No pressure. Well, I just kind of wanted to build on what Dave is saying. I actually think that Strive uh, exists because engine number one exists. And I, I do think, uh, you know, Strive is a very controversial manager, but I think their entrance into the market is actually a good thing because now we have an, the ability to express a variety of opinions. And I think we're going to have more uh, folks like Strive and like engine number one coming in. And so anybody can, um, people have a, a, you know, a range of rainbow of, 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 of options um, for f abilities to vote your shares. And that's a good thing. Choice is a good thing. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. 
There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. All right, so we've covered the Philly, Kansas City game. <laughs> we've covered ETFs maturing, crypto, ESG. Something else that really stood out to me at this event was international stock ETFs. And I'm going to set the backdrop like this. So Ian Bremer, who is president of Eurasia Group, he gave what I thought was an excellent presentation uh, on the entire geopolitical black, uh, backdrop. And then Dr. David Kelly with JP Morgan offered some great data points on international stocks overall. And if I had to just summarize their thoughts in a couple of sentences, uh, it would be that Ian clearly sees some serious geopolitical issues out there. The title of his presentation was a geopolitical recession. But I, I think he thinks some of that stuff, it, it runs in cycles. It's going to be short term. Uh, nothing that I think investors have to be overly concerned with. And then when I think about uh, Dr. Kelly's presentation, he saw some really significant tailwinds for international stocks. So potentially a weaker dollar, uh, China ending their zero COVID policy, more favorable valuations, which we've been hearing for a while, higher dividends. And if you look at international stock ETFs uh, to, to start the year, flows have been on fire and performance is good going back to about October 1st of last year. So the, the question I'll tee up is, do you think this has staying power because we've been hearing about international stock ETFs. They may turn for how long now? Six, seven, eight years, right? <clears throat> and anybody allocating to that space has probably underperformed fairly substantially over the past decade plus. So the question is, do international stock ETFs have staying power? <laughs> what a huge question. Uh, yeah, I, I think most people have an allocation. Um, but I've come a little closer to Bogle's view on this, which is you just don't need it. Um, not only, you know, can you not time it, but um, the uh, you have an, so much innovation in the U.S. It's kind of like good enough to power your whole portfolio. Um, that said, if you're a trader or you're looking to make create alpha through asset allocation, I would probably rotate into international because it's really due, to say the least. The reversion of the mean tells you it should come back for a while. But... When I think of companies and the stuff going on in America versus the rest of the world, uh, you know, you get you get enough here, I think. Plus, a lot of our companies are international, and so you you already get some of that exposure anyway. So I kind of see Bogle's point on this. The more I think about it, but in ETF terms, yeah, you're going to see the soccer ball get kicked around the field to different areas. Right now, it's been kicked to international. Will it last for a year or two? Maybe. EM tends to come for like a year and then re recedes. If you look at the if you look at the ETF portfolio, i.e., like the total assets in all the different asset classes, as if a single investor owned the entire market, what we saw in the pre-pandemic through the pandemic into about September last year was a de-internationalization of a lot of portfolios. It wasn't explicitly like, oh my gosh, this month all of this flow went in the other direction. It didn't make a lot of headlines. But if you look at where we ended up, say in September last year versus where we were in 2019. The market in in general was a net seller of their international exposure. They they rehomed. They were also a defensive equity player, right? The the large cap growth got all beat up. Value had a moment in the sun. People started caring about mid caps again for the first time ever, right? So those things sort of tilted the global portfolio of ETFs towards safer domestic positioning 
that's what's unwinding. I think that's what's unwinding. I don't think that we're in a huge bull market. For, like, there's the stories. The stories are real. Like, yeah, a weak dollar environment, rehoming of uh, manufacturing into the U.S., natural resource, resource exploration. There's all sorts of reasons why international does make sense. But I think what we're really seeing is normalization. I can't agree more. I, I, I think that's exactly what we're seeing. We're kind of seeing it come back to a normal a normal uh, threshold. Um, you know, on, on our site, we're seeing a great upswell of interest. And in, I actually talked about this in my session. Uh, in international stocks, specifically about Eurozone stocks. Uh, and it's really interesting the, uh, the the types of queries that are being made and engagement. You can see that people are, you can almost uh, see the Google question of which is better, EZU or FEZ, or you know, which is better, this one or that one. And and because the the pairings there of the ETFs that are um, you know really popular on our site are the top two Eurozone ETFs or the top two all-world ex-US uh, you know, ETFs. I think one thing um, that last year definitely showed a lot of folks is just the importance of currency on returns. And I think that was something we all sort of took for granted for a while, or at least a lot of the, uh, investors took it for granted for a while, but you couldn't ignore it any longer in 2022 so how many uh, times do we have to learn this lesson i mean 2010 <laughs> 2010 happened right <laughs> like we saw this in the japan fund like, well there's always new advisors there's always new investors coming. well to you market. know what's interesting so we have a big run back in currency hedging right? yeah yeah but it nobody it you didn't get a second bite at the apple no. i yeah. think um i this is why i think esg is going to struggle when you outperform you're going to take these people in people are going to be like oh i like i want that then it underperforms and people are going to like get off the ride oh that wasn't what i thought I think that's what happened with currency hedging. They like got on the currency hedge ride, and then it's like, oh, it doesn't always outperform. Oh my god! And then they got off, and then they thought, ah, I'm not going to try to time this again because currency hedge ETFs rocked for the past couple of years. They should have taken more money in, um, and they didn't. And I think we have this phrase called second bite at the apple, and there's a lot of cases where you just don't get a second bite. Um, and I think that's you know the case here, which is interesting. I, I love that you oh. go ahead. I love Eric. That you can tie anything back to slagging on ESG. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm very good at it. G give me a word. I can explain. On no, by, by the way, Eric's fully morphing into Jack Bogle. Like now you're here on international. Listen, it, it it you know it it is like I studied him for like two years straight, read all his books, and it does get into your wiring, and you're like, and over time you're like, you know, it's it's almost like truth. Like you just like he kind of has a point, like. But I do think he's almost too pure for almost anybody. You know, a total market fund, hold it for 50 years. Most people just aren't going to do that. I think you want to decorate your portfolio a little more. So, but he, it, it's a pretty good point. I mean, and, and it's hard to, it's hard to counter that. Most of the stuff he says is hard to counter. It's just, I don't know, we're human. He, it, what he's saying is almost so disciplined and pure. It's almost impossible to pull off as a human being. But, um, yeah, no, he went, he ended, he, he he sort of went full circle and ended with this sort of completely simplistic look at the whole thing. Um, but the ESG thing, yeah, I should probably, you know, maybe like uh, not be so critical. I Part of the reason Don't critical, ever change. <laughs> no, but part of the reason is uh, if you look at the media coverage and it gets a ton of media coverage, it tends to not go over these nuances. Yeah. And that's I'm an I'm an analyst. I just want to I'm not anti ESG. I'm anti nasty surprise. Yeah, no, I my know. whole system is fighting nasty surprises. And so, 
With ESG, I just feel like it's being presented in a way that's not completely telling the full story. Once you hear the full story and you go in, I'm fine. I just want to, I don't want tourists to get hurt. Yeah, and, and I think that's fair. It's like there there are products out there that are just twice as expensive as the other version and from any academic analysis perspective, identical to the cheaper one. So why buy them? I agree. Those things are there. I just think that that's not the end of the story. And I think that we're going to be talking about this issue for the rest of our careers. <laughs> I really going to say this is not going to be no, smart. No, 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 no. You don't think smart beta is going to die and then we'll talk no, about no, no, the next no. thing? No, we, every year for the rest of my career, the subject of either environmental governance, environment governance or social issues is going to be part of the conversation. It's the, the world we live in. It's I just like at the bottom of Eric's ETF shopping list, is international ESG. ESG. <laughs> <laughs> I, let me just add one quick thing on international and then we'll move on. Um, you mentioned currency hedged ETFs and the flows we saw into those products. Clearly, they outperformed the unhedged products. But then international had a really tough stretch just overall. So if you look at the performance of some of those products relative to U.S. stocks, you know, we really got into the, 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 the higher trajectory of the, uh, the, the tech mega cap uh, bull market during that period in the U.S. And where I'm heading is, I think a lot of advisors just became disenfranchised with international overall. And I, I've talked to advisors where they just started reducing allocations in their portfolio. So maybe they had, whatever, 25% of their equity exposure in international. And over the past five, six years, they've continued to reduce that. And now if you look at how that's performed over the past, whatever, three or four months, they're, they're caught off sides. Right. And if that continues, I do think that that performance, whether we like it or not, could draw interest. And maybe we will see of course. flows back Pen into currency hedged ETFs. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Currency win. hedging outperforming by being flat isn't exactly exciting. <laughs> it's not yeah. exciting. Right, right. Um, if the market's but, up 8% and the international stocks are up 8% and the currency hedge version is up 20, it's going to get all the money. It's we know relative that. to yeah. U.S. stocks. I agree with you. And when, when currency hedge hit in 2012, the performance was like, it was shiny object mode. It, it was, was like, like up 40 yeah. over everything. Because yeah. international was also doing well. Yeah. yeah. But one quick thing on the counter for going international, and this is from a, a quote from Dan Egan in my book. I love this. He goes, well, Rome fell. <laughs> <laughs> I still think the U.S. is in good shape, but that is a pretty good counter. Well, we have, we've had plenty of doom and gloom at this conference, so we, we need to talk about the entire demise of democratic capitalism. <laughs> All right. With our remaining time, what I want to do is just offer up a quick grab bag of topics. You can... Pick any of these, or if you have something else mm. that maybe I've missed that, that was a highlight to you, let, let's just throw it out on the table and we can talk about it. So um, I mentioned Morgan Stanley earlier in the context of ESG, but Morgan Stanley entering the ETF space is clearly a big story here. They're getting a lot of buzz. I heard a lot of people talking about them, so th that's one. Um, on the other hand, I would say there was a lack of talk and discussion around Kathy Wood and ARC. And that's despite ARKK posting its best monthly performance, I believe, ever in January. Uh, you know, ARKK, that took in positive flows last year. But I didn't hear anybody talking about ARK this year. You know, last year, if you go back, we heard a lot about them. So, so ARK. And then the last one is just bond ETFs. I keep saying there's now income and fixed income. I do think they're much more attractive to uh, advisors and investors than where they were clearly at the start of last year. Any of those topics, I'll just throw them out to the group. Anything grab your attention there? I'll start with ARC. That's a t specialty of mine. Um, we were at a dinner. It was with Dave. ARC came up. Uh, so I, I do think ARC still is a topic I, because ARC took in $1.8 last year, which, by the way, was the number one best-selling thematic ETF. So even though Kathy lost the race to other active, in thematic, she was number one again. Uh, so they're not going anywhere. I think 
I think the reason Arc is relevant and will be and has bucked the trend of like uh, other high fly managers is that if your core of your portfolio is pretty boring beta, Kathy's selling a really compelling vision of the future. People uh, definitely critique her data and her logic, but when she goes over robotics, AI, healthcare, you're like, well, this, I don't want to miss out. If she's right on even a couple of these things, I want to definitely, you know, get a little piece of that. And her portfolio has 99% active share to the S&P. So you're not really getting any ARC stocks in your beta. So I think she's tapped into, again, it's a practical play. I understand investing in ARC despite all of those other criticism. And that's why I tend to defend her. I also defend her because she has said what she's going to do. She did it and she sticks with it. That's all she's done. And it's my, a long only portfolio. She just has a different view of active than most active managers. My, my, my one liner on ARC, the company, not Kathy Wood, is it's hope with receipts, right? I mean, that's what they're selling. They're hope. They're selling hope, and they're showing you why. You can disagree with them. That's fine. Don't buy the fund. They're not trying to pretend these things are going to go up in a straight line. They're selling hope, and they're showing you the story of why they are hopeful. I think in this world, there's a lack of hope in a lot of the financial market world that we live in. Um, I, we can get into arguments about whether they should or shouldn't say things about what their price targets are. And those are reasonable conversations. But at the end of the day, I think the faithful are faithful there because they're selling hope. And that's that's a, a really unique position in the asset management industry. But I do think the decline and the exhaustion of the arc mania, just I think people are like, all right, I, I've I seen like every crypto. People are dumb. Same with crypto. Moment. Like there's Take just an, an exhaustion of something, especially as it comes back down to earth. And I think you just move on sometimes. But I think she's going to be around for a long time. She's got a nice franchise. Not going anywhere. Yeah. Okay, well, but she was on uh, Bloomberg last week where she said ARKK is, is a new NASDAQ. Yeah, right? see, I don't love that. I, if I were her, I would say we're the next gen NASDAQ or something. But so, that's Kathy. I mean, she reminds me of Gunlock in her ability to stir up the crowd. Uh, she says these things and everyone like loses their mind. But, uh, you know, her engagement and her ability to stay in the spotlight is something that are really lacking from normal active PMs who have so many compliance people. They can't, By the time they say anything, it's five days late and boring. And so she is able to take a lot of oxygen. But I don't dis, I don't agree with many of the things she says, especially those predictions like the 25% growth. I would, I was, last year I was here, I interviewed her and I said, why don't you just not say that? Like people are already <laughs> with you. And uh, and then I said, and also who's your compliance person? <laughs> they, but like, here's, here's my pushback. I put this out on Twitter. If she's saying things that are non-compliant, why isn't the SEC coming after her? Well, they, I see they all are. these asset managers so, that are out there complaining about how she's marketing this stuff. And I, I just wonder, maybe their compliance is too tight. I'm just playing devil's advocate. In general, here, right? it is. But uh, Kathy was on Bloomberg IQ, and we asked her like about her growth rate. I think Ka Katie wanted to make some headlines. Um, and she goes, I've been told I shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> so somebody got to her at some point. Yeah. You know, I, I think... We're not talking about Kathy Wood as much as we were, but we are talking about active management, right? And so for a long time, the, the face of active management was Kathy Wood, and now it isn't anymore. I think that's probably, uh, you know, we spent 10 minutes at the top of the show talking about various different strategies and, act and the dominance of active. So um, I don't think she has all the oxygen in the room anymore. That's that's certainly uh, something that's true. Um, but certainly the underlying trend uh, of a strong active approach, that 
is very much part of the conversation. Yeah, the best thing she did, I've, I've said this before, is she stuck to her convictions. She stuck to her strategy yeah. when the market was down last year. People know exactly what they're going to get from her products. And, and, and I think that was that the best. Before they formed ARC, that's how she's been, right? I mean, like, you'd say what you will. The conviction has never wavered, not once. Yeah. All right. Anything else here? Morgan ETFs, bond ETFs. We'll just go around the table here. Final word, uh, Dave. I'll I mean, start great with you. to see Morgan Stanley coming back into the market after their gap since 1996, when the last <laughs> time they were in the market. So that's great. Um, but like, I, I think it's great. I, it's really obvious what they brought out. These Calvert products have audiences. Um, I think it's great that they're doing some of the active fixed income piece. I think active fixed income is going to be a story we talk about for a long time. So I see Morgan kind of bolting both of those things together with just a side note that, you know, Tony Rockti is the guy who's been pushing that effort there. You do see that these new companies coming in with old brands are hiring veterans. It's over and over and over again. I think that's interesting just because as much as we all understand how these things work, ETFs are still really complicated and the ETF market is still really intensely weird. And if you don't have the experience in it, we've seen this. New players do not succeed if they don't understand it. I'll riff off of that by saying the you know, being at Morgan Stanley, I think they're gonna be successful. I, I think Wall Street banks have a huge advantage that the rest of the buy side doesn't, which is that they've got so many other revenue sources. They can be a little cannibalistic. And JP Morgan shows that. I was just talking to Brian Lake. He said only 13% of JP Morgan's revenue is from asset management. So, like, you know, you cannibalize a little there. You still have so many things going on. Uh, Jamie Dimon's got his hands full. And I think in Morgan Stanley's case, they, you know, if he can just get it up to James Gorman to kind of have that same philosophy and let Anthony Rockty do his thing, um, that's great. I mean, BlackRock also did. They're one of the few firms that's buy side that actually built out so many different revenue streams. So my prediction on these big asset managers, if they want to be the one acquiring and not being acquired, they're going to have to find something to somewhat subsidize their ETF business. And I think that's going to be the name of the game for the leaders in asset management. And we'll see if Morgan Stanley, I mean, I think they'll, they will be one of those. Uh, that said, I, I don't know if these Calvert funds are going to be successful, but over time they have, uh, 20,000 advisors with $4 trillion in assets. That's a nice captive market right well, there. Well, and you know they're not going to stop. They're going to have 30 yeah. funds by the end of next year or something like that. Yeah. I mean, they're on an aircraft carrier. They're yeah. going to be okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. None of us are worried about Morgan's yeah. long-term prospects. Laura, you get the final word. I get the final word. Well, so what I will probably take away from the conference is less a trend of bond ETFs or particular issuers or anything, but more just the sense of uh, community. I know that's very Pollyanna for me to say, but uh, something we didn't discuss here was that there were, th uh, there are three different um, nonprofit partnerships that happened at the conference. There was a walk uh, for the Susan G. Komen Foundation. There was a Surfrider beach cleanup. And tomorrow there's going to be uh, the Junior Achievement's going to come in and have a partnership there. Like five years ago, you wouldn't have seen that at an exchange at, 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 at a conference, right? It just wouldn't have happened. I think it kind of speaks a little bit to a vibe within this industry that's more of a a desire to truly just give back and and you know see um, good done in the world, right? Like we all want to make money and we want to you know, do good for clients and everything. But I, I I feel like more than ever before, and maybe this ties back to the feeling of uh, what people want out of ESG, right? That's kind of why they gravitate to ESG is they want to make an impact for good in the world that they live in. Um, I, I feel like that's not a trend that's going away. 
I love you ending on the positive vibe note. Are I like that you can tie anything into why ESG is over. <laughs> <laughs> are we all heading down to the bar now? Yes. Oh, so. uh, yeah. Look, uh, so great seeing you all in person. Uh, Dave, Laura, congratulations on uh, this wonderful conference by Vetify. Uh, thank you all for joining me. Thank you. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify, Dave Nodig, Financial Futurist at Vetify, and Eric Balchuna, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Simplify Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Simplify, you can visit simplify.us. Next week, I'll be back in studio. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet, but I promise we'll have some excellent guests. And Dave, you'll be joining me as well. So Wouldn't I'm miss it. Sure, we'll come up with something uh, pretty good. And hopefully, I'll also be celebrating a Chiefs Super Bowl victory. <laughs> yeah, listen, collecting. ETF Prime audience, get ready to hear the Eagles fight song. <laughs> Until then, have a great week, everyone. 